fire away, bro. Welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. My name is Rob. And I'm Trisha. And we're gonna... We're your hosts tonight. (laughs) (laughs) We're gonna be reading from the Black Panther Party. I mean, damn it. From the Bobby Seal books, <laughs> Seize the Time, the story of the Black Panther Party. There we go. Uh, but before we dive into that, um, <laughs> I'm going to play a video uh, that's an interview done by ABC uh, with Fred Hampton about three months before he was assassinated. Um, and I mean, I guess I gotta give ABC some credit here. They used to, you know, like do some journalism. They interviewed Fred Hampton. Right, right. That alone is shocking enough that a major news network was like, yeah, let's hand a mic to Fred. <laughs> yeah. <At least> they... <laughs> Shit. Here's to that. We'll give credit where credit's due. Here's to that. Fred, where does the Black Panther Party stand concerning the Weathermen, the SDS? We stand way back from the SDS and the Weathermen because we believe that the Weathermen action, there's two actions, there's REM2 and Weathermen. We think, they call them both national action. We think that REM2 is national action, Weathermen is national reaction, you know. We think it is anarchistic, opportunistic, individualistic, it's chauvinistic, it's uh, uh, customistic, and that's the bad part about it. It's customistic in that it's leaders take people in situations where the people can be massacred, and they call that revolution, and it's nothing but child's play, it's folly, and it's criminal because people can be hurt. We say that they're doing exactly what the people want them to do when they take people down and, and just do nothing play around and the pigs are prepared for this and they'll wipe all of those young people out we think these people may be sincere but they're misguided they're muddleheads and they're scatterbrains the only way we can show them is to criticize them like we're doing right now and then leave from here and go to the federal bill and have a demonstration that's to educate a demonstration that it is a uh, disciplined and organized you know and that's what we're gonna have to do and let them see the examples tell me why you feel the approach of the SDS weatherman is wrong I feel it is wrong, uh, just as I said before. No, don't don't that, tell me just you said before. That's why I asked you again. Just answer straight, because okay. in case we use this part. I feel that is well, wrong. Let me ask you again. Why do you feel that the approach of the SDS weatherman is the wrong approach? I feel that it's wrong because it's pig action. You see, they're doing exactly what the pigs want them to do. They're leading people into a situation where the, it's an astronomical situation too great for the people to deal with. It's a situation where you got a bunch of mechanical pigs with 357 magnums and shotguns and mechanical mates and all that type of thing. And then they're talking about they're going to carry on a revolutionary struggle. That's not revolution, it's insanity, it's, it's a madness, it's nostalgia, and it's a massacre. That's what a potential massacre, that's what it is. And we don't support that because we've said all power to the people. All the power is manifested in the people. We don't have any people whose lives we believe that should be thrown away. Has the weatherman SDS get you to go on their side? Have you met with them and what happened? We met with the, the weatherman faction of SDS uh, several times. We've had ideological struggles and we have ideological differences. So what we did was we had an uh, we, we the other faction of SDS that agreed with the Black Panther Party called for an alternate action. 
a way of discipline, uh, action not to provoke pigs, an action not to talk about uh, setting up confrontations with the pigs because the people are not ready for confrontation. These confrontations that they have are premature. They're politically premature and they're wrong because they commit people in a situation which they're not anywhere prepared for. Well, why do you think the Weatherman SDS tried to link the Black Panther Party to its movement? I don't know if it was actually the Weatherman of SDS. I'd have to say that it was the establishment press that is nothing but a tool of Warden Nixon's uh, machine. We call him Warden Nixon because the whole world is a penitentiary and he's just a warden of the whole world. And you see, these people are just an arm that he uses for fascist oppression, you know. And I think today, these fascist uh, news media might have did that. Now briefly, how mm -hmm. would you sum up what the Weatherman SDS is trying to do and what you think of what they're trying to do? I'd say that basically they believe, they, they believe that white people need to learn how to struggle. That they believe that these white workers need to learn how to struggle through confrontations. I'd have to say that basically I believe that this is incorrect. I believe that white workers have been struggling. They're some of the most violent people in the world. I believe that what they need is they need a redirection in their ideology and in their politics. They need to know who to struggle against. The workers need to start to begin to learn that their job is to struggle against the bosses. And until they do this, then struggle is incorrect. It's like no struggle at all. We say that if you don't struggle correctly, you shouldn't struggle. But you should struggle. We said dad to struggle and you dare to win. Dare not to struggle and you don't deserve to win. But we have to struggle properly. What about the special approach of uh, Weatherman, which seems to be violence? Well, you see, it's, I don't think it's really violence, you know what I mean? I think it's just a lot of folly, it's a lot of child's play. I think that to have violence, you've got to be able to cope with violence, you know what I mean? And that's what the Black Panther, see the Black Panther Party, a lot of people say we're violent. We're, we're a self-defense organization that believes that the people should be educated to what's going on. We, yes, we do defend our offices and we do defend our homes. This is a constitutional right everybody has, there's nothing funny about that. The only reason they get mad at the Black Panther Party when they do it is for the simple reason that we're political. And they don't want to admit this. There are a lot of young organizations around, but we are a political organization. We're an organization that understands that politics is nothing but war without bloodshed and war is nothing but politics with bloodshed. He quoted Mauda ABC you can stretch things, they're going to be another thing. If you stretch politics so long, it'll be war. And that's where we're at. Well, then why do you feel it's so important for the Black Panther Party to disavow any real link with the Weatherman SDS? I think it's important because there are a lot of people that watch the Black Panther Party, for example. They observe us and participate with us. And if we can be connected up with this, then it would be very uh, uh, unadvantageous to the people and very unadvantageous to the struggle in that people that claim to be revolutionary would be going down roads that they think might be revolution, but in fact, they're not roads of revolution. They'll be going east when their intentions are going west. And also it's important because the chairman Bobby Seale is in town and he's being tried by this fascist judge Adolf Hitler Hoffman. He's being tried without a lawyer. And we've got to bring all of the attention and focus on this trial that we possibly can so that people can understand that these people are more capable of building gas chambers than Hitler ever was capable of building gas chambers. And we're going to have to get together. We're going to have to have some anti-gas chamber marches and some anti-fascism marches and some anti-Hitler Hoffman marches and some anti- Mussolini, Attorney General Mitchell marches and some anti-Daily uh, and some anti-Hammerhead, Hammerhead marches. These are the things we're going to have to do. The people need to be educated. If they're educated, we can resist and we can stop this fascism. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks for giving okay. us the second shot. Okay. 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 <laughs> Just okay. Thanks. Right. He didn't even know how to respond to that.
or at least knew that he was not allowed to respond to that in the way that he wanted to because he might have lost his job. Fred, the uh, weatherman branch of the SDS uh, seems to be giving the impression that the Black Panther Party is, is with them. No, the Black Panther Party is not with weathermen. Let me explain very clear, clearly that we believe that action like that is action of insanity. It's not a revolution even. You see, going out in the streets and getting people shot and killed and maimed, that's insanity. It's chauvinistic and it's customistic. And when we say customistic, we mean it's, it's does, a type of action. Does it play uh, the same interview twice? Big horn. And we're not getting involved in any little big horns in the city of Chicago. The Black Panther Party intends to support anything that is disciplined, anything that does not provoke violence on the part of the pig power structure, because this is what they want to do. They want to kill some people. And these leaders are nothing but leaders who have customistic tendencies. They will lead people into slaughters. And we think that that's uh, it's criminal to the people. It's a crime against the people. Cut it for a minute, that's real good. Now I want to put it just one other way. I'm going to ask you, why don't you Fred, why doesn't the Black Panther Party support the tactics of the Weatherman SDS? We don't support those tactics because they are uh, acts of provocation and they're acts that the pigs, the, the policemen in the city, enjoy. They're doing just what the police want them to do. Our actions are just the opposite from that. We are educating the people to the wrongs that the you pigs commit. You notice he asked them again and the then he started saying policemen Has the uh, weatherman tried to uh, curry favor with the uh, Black Panthers? Right, we've had several discussions with uh, the weathermen. we tried to talk them out of a lot of their anarchistic uh, demonstrations that they have planned here. We tell them that we don't believe in demonstration for the sake of demonstration. We believe in demonstration for the sake of education and we still go on that basic theory. We believe that people need to be educated if we're ever going to defend ourselves against the fascism that's running rampant in the United States of America and all over the world today. How violent do you think the weathermen are looking to become? I don't, uh, I don't think it's really a question of violence. Uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a, we call it muddleheadness, you know what I mean? I think how muddlehead will they become is the question. How uh, masochistic and anarchistic will they become, you know what I mean? How much will they enjoy seeing people slaughtered in the streets before they get, get, uh, come around and get them a plan of well-disciplined, well-organized type of education demonstration where the people can be saved. We say all power to the people and all power is manifested in the people. We don't have any people to just throw away and throw their lives away. We think that people that throw the people's lives away in these types of counter-revolutionary folly, those people are criminals and they should be judged as such. And these people that commit crimes against the people, the people should try them and indict them and sentence them. Uh, tell me, Fred, because the Black Panther Party feels this way and because the Panthers have been linked with Weathermen through the Weathermen, uh, have you tried in any way to dissuade the weathermen uh, to stop them from uh, this kind of tactic? We've talked to weathermen time and time again, you know what I mean? Yeah, and told them that we thought this was wrong. And let me say this, I don't believe these people are, I think they're some sincere people, but I think they're a little mixed up. That's why I be very careful about the word I use. I try to use words like muddle-headed, you know what I mean, and uh, scatterbrains, that's what they are. They're some young people who really have some revolutionary fervor, but they don't know how to direct that fervor. So what we're going to have to do is try to re-channel that into some type of revolutionary discipline. I don't. I think if anybody looks at us, we're an example. We try to set examples for the people. The Black Panther Party is the most disciplined organization in the, in the country, and the pigs still attack the Black Panther Party office. So that shows that we're still doing something to the power structure, but we don't have to do it in a way where we put people's lives on the line. That's not necessary, and we try to tell them that. Okay, uh, tell me what else you want to get off your chest. Anything? I'd like to tell you, know, there's one thing that's very important to the people, that they see that that so-called trial at the federal building is nothing but what I call a hecatomb. It's a public sacrifice where they're slaughtering the leaders of the people, and the only way we're going to stop that is if it's the people 
resist that, you know what I mean? Because it's not a question of non-violence or violence, it's a question of resistance to fascism, a non-existent non-existence. And this is what we're gonna have to deal with. We're gonna have to go down to the fat to the federal building and deal with that judge, we call him Judge Adolf uh, Hitler Hoffman and, and uh, deal with the Attorney General, Attorney General Mussolini Mitchell. All these people that have these fascist tendencies, they, they have this society is more technical than the German society ever was. They are going to be a better and more adequate gas chambers and we've got to be prepared to deal with that. Education is the only way. We've got okay. to educate the people. You got so. anything else you want to say? No, not particularly. All right. Look, uh, just want to. No, not particularly. Uh, this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.com. Yeah. Um, just so everybody knows, in the PDF, we'll be picking up on page 181. Uh, the title of the chapter is My Constitutional Rights Are Denied. Um, we're right smack in the middle of what he was talking about with Judge Adolf Hoffman and Attorney General Mussolini Mitchell. Uh, Trisha, I think you're still muted. That's saying Hoffman was absolutely fucking atrocious. Yeah. And I mean, we saw that even just in the Hollywood adaptation. I can only imagine what it was like in the actual courtroom. Right, right. Like they they gave enough of a glimpse there to understand that he truly was a fucking monster sitting up there on the bench. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, I would also just like to point out before we dive into this, since we just listened to Fred Hampton talk about three months before his assassination, you hear the kind of message that he was trying to spread. And it's not too hard to see why the power structure wanted him gone. And uh, if you're not already aware, I would assume this far into the book that most of us are uh, aware that uh, declassified FBI documents showed that they organized his assassination. Yeah. There's it, no it question was, about that at this point. Right. Like, I mean, it, I know. just want to clarify. It wasn't a fluke. Uh, you know, it wasn't just an informant. It was a whole well-planned operation. Right. And they didn't care for the sole purpose of setting him up. Well, for the whole, for, well, I mean, when they weren't able to set him up, they just killed him. Uh huh. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, let's not get too off topic. Not that it's terribly off topic. Obviously, we're talking about the Black Panther Party, but. Um, if you aren't familiar with the situation, okay. do the research yourself. It's there, and it's all from official government sources. Right. Everything okay. from inside the investigation showing just how adamant they were about trying to infiltrate the Panthers to try to find any fucking thing they could on Hampton simply because they did not like his message that it was inspiring the people. 
Yeah. And, and obviously it was resonating with people. That's the whole thing. The Black Panther Party at that point in time was growing almost faster than the government could take them out. Yeah. And I mean, we can see the, the shift in tactics too, because I, I mean, you know, they tried to use strong arm force. That didn't work. They tried to you know, like lock them up and that was disastrous. I mean, they were organizing national criminal gangs in the penitentiaries. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> like, it, it, I, I don't know, no matter whether or not you agree with the Black Panthers, you have to like respect how devoted they were and you have to respect who they were organizing. Right, they were taking people and going, wait a minute, <laughs> yeah, this is a whole chunk of people that Lenin wrote off, that Marx wrote off, that Mao wrote off. And they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> right? Like, hold a minute. Hold up a minute. You're the bumping proletariat. You're still the proletariat. You just might not be fully aware of it. Let's talk. Because you're over here fucking around with this gang shit. When if you brought that level of unity and solidarity to some political shit, you can truly make a change in your proof life. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's where the shift in tactic came from. And mm -hmm. um, it, it, let's not forget that when Huey Newton got out of jail, or shortly after Huey Newton got out of jail, he was all of a sudden anti-gun. Like, I, I want to know what happened there, too. But the details seem muddy. Right. But uh, basically, when uh, shortly after he got out of jail, he was just saying that he didn't think picking up the gun was an important piece of the revolutionary work, which went against everything that, that is being said in this book. Right. Everything that he had specifically said up till that point, just like, no, we absolutely do need guns in order to protect ourselves, to defend our own lives, you know? So it makes me wonder what exactly triggered that shift. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, who wants to go first? Mm, I can. Uh, this section is called My Constitutional Rights Are Denied. Jerry Rubin and I were taken to the federal court on Monday morning, September 24th, and William Kunstler filed a motion to see me in the jail over there. He came in and said, I heard you were talking about firing all the lawyers unless you had Gary. Yeah, I said, because all you cats were supposed to do for me is file motions. As far as I'm concerned, Gary's going to be my trial lawyer. He's always been my lawyer. Kunstler said that if I did that, Judge Hoffman would appoint some kind of public defender. So I told him, well, they can appoint a public defender, but I ain't working with a public defender. I don't want a public defender. I want Gary. I don't want anybody but Gary. You call Gary, I told Kunstler, and see if I have a legal right to fire a public defender. Don't I have that right? Yeah, you can. Well, that's what I'm going to do, I told him. 
And if Hoffman tries to appoint you or anyone else as my lawyer, I'm going to fire you cats anyway. So Kunstler said, the jury is about to be picked now and you can get in touch with Gary later. You guys get in touch with Gary for me, I said, and then I'll sum up exactly what I'm going to do because before this trial starts, I'm going to make sure I have proper legal defense. After that, I had a chance to meet with all the other defendants. The trial finally got underway the next day. I was in hospital at the time, and I was allowed to keep my legal stuff with me. I saw them pick a whole jury in just one day. Meanwhile, I just want to interject there to point out that it was like, what, two weeks almost of jury selection for the Derek Chauvin trial? Right. And these guys just knocked it out in one day. And it was most certainly not a jury of their peers. Right. Uh, anyway, that was all I had. Anyway. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, I was waiting for a message from Gary. Finally, I got a phone call through to Gary's office on Thursday from Cook County Jail. Warden Moore called me to his office and dialed the number himself. I talked to Barney Dreyfus, Gary's law partner, and I asked him if Gary was definitely going into the hospital or if he had changed his mind. Dreyfus said that the Wells case was over, but that Gary definitely had to go to the hospital the next day. His doctors had said that he'd better have that gallbladder operation right away because it would be a real danger to his life not to. Well, I'm going to ask the judge to postpone my part of the trial so that I can have Gary, I said, because I can't function without Gary and I don't want these other lawyers here. Let Gary know what I'm doing and then maybe after he gets out of the hospital, we can go on. Dreyfus mentioned that they had talked to the Panther Party Central Committee about my situation, and the Central Committee also agreed that since I had a legal right to fire the lawyers, I should do it. And boom, that's what happened. That night in the hospital, I wrote out my first motion, a request that I be allowed to fire the lawyers and postpone the trial until Char Charles Gary could defend me. The next morning, Friday, I got up and went to the trial, and when I got to the defense table, I told Kunstler that I was going to fire everybody. He said, what? I said, yep, everybody gets fired because Gary's definitely going into the hospital. And I'm going to ask for a firing on the basis of my part of the trial being postponed. This judge, I said, seems to be kind of rotten. I already consider him a racist, seeing the way he's running this thing. So I've got my statement all written out. I let them read it. And one of the defendants said, man, that's going to make it look like all of the defendants are splitting. I said, man, the defendants aren't splitting. I'm not splitting from you cats. It's just that my situation is very different, man, in a lot of ways. These cats stuck me on the tail end of this indictment to try to railroad me into prison. So I need Gary here, and everybody knows it. Gary's my lawyer. I haven't confirmed any of these other lawyers. I'm not going to be letting Hoffman pick and choose my lawyer for me when he knows that Gary is my lawyer, my attorney of record. They said, well, okay. That's what I'm doing, I said. So I proceeded to exercise my constitutional rights. The marshal waved the gavel and said, I'll rise, and everybody rose. This court is now in session pursuant to adjournment. Boom, boom, boom. The Honorable Julius J. Hoffman presiding. At that point, I got up and I walked to the podium and I told him I'd like to read a statement concerning my legal defense. Don't you have a lawyer, Hoffman asked. No, I said, I want to read this statement concerning my defense. So I read the statement. I got to the point in the statement where I said, and if you don't respect my constitutional rights, then I'm going to have to consider you a blatant racist who's prejudiced against all the other defendants and myself in particular. Hoffman interrupted me. 
What did you say? A blatant racist, I replied. I consider you a racist, just like all the other judges who saw people's constitutional rights violated in the South throughout the history of this country. He didn't know where I was coming from. I was coming from the fact that he'd already denied the motion that Charles Gary had made a month before the trial started. Gary had flown to Chicago in August to try to make a motion for postponement on the basis of the fact that he had to go into the hospital for an operation. Hoffman said my motion would be denied. Kunstler got up and said something, but I don't remember what he said. And then Len Wineglass, the other lawyer, and seven other defendants said they wanted to meet with me. Wineglass told the federal marshals that this day or this and each day after the court was over in the afternoon, I would meet with them. I told the other defendants what I was going to be doing with respect to making motions concerning my constitutional rights and things like that. Every time my name came up, I stood and said, Judge Hoffman, I don't have my lawyer here. Well, young man, you have a lawyer. Mr. Kunstler is your lawyer. No, he's not my lawyer, I said, and I argued the point. During the first week or so, I got up four or five times in this manner, and when I'd start saying, but Judge Hoffman, you're wrong, I have a certain constitutional right, he'd say, take the jury out. When I made that first motion that first Friday morning, not one witness had been sworn in on the part of the prosecution. Not one. This is very important because by law, the trial isn't considered to have begun until a witness is sworn in. After Schultz made his opening statement to the jury, this is still before a single witness had been sworn in, Kunstler got up and made his statement. Right after he got through, the judge asked if there was any other statements. I got up from my chair and walked to the podium. I was just getting ready to reply to what Schultz had said about how he would prove that I was guilty and that I had made a speech telling people to get pistols, rifles, and shotguns and then told them to riot. What I really said, and we have a transcript of the speech, was that every black man should put a 357 Magnum pistol, a shotgun, and an M1 rifle in his home. In essence, what I talked about in that speech was that we have the right to defend ourselves against unjust attacks by pigs. And, quote, if the pigs attack us in an unjust manner, then we have a right to barbecue some of that pork. That's exactly what I said. But I didn't tell people to go out and riot. I told them we had a right to defend ourselves against unjust attacks. And the words in my speech say unjust. But Schultz turned it around. Quote, and we'll prove that Mr. Seal made this speech telling people to pick up guns, 357 Magnums, shotguns, etc., and go out and riot. And Schultz emphasized to the jury that Mr. Seal is a very effective speaker. He's very effective. I just want to when interject got- here to say that if if that is what Mr. Seal had in fact said, then the outcome of the police riot would have been a completely different situation. Yeah. <laughs> no lies detected. Um, when I got up to the podium, I was going to say Mr. Schultz has just made a reference to me being a very effective speaker, but I want it known to the jury that I intend to prove that if I am an effective speaker, speech is directly re- related to my constitutional rights and everybody's constitutional rights. That's what I was going to say at first and move on from there. But all I said was Mr. Schultz. And at that point, Hoffman said, just a minute, young man, and peered down at me. I looked up at him. Who is your lawyer, Hoffman asks. Mr. Charles Gary, I said. 
I was getting ready to say Mr. Charles Gary, who's in the hospital in California. But when I said Mr. Charles Gary, Hoffman said, take the jury out, take the jury out. He rushed the jury right out and got them out of the way. He didn't want the jury to see the crap he was about to pull. After the jury went out, he went on to argue, and then Kunstler got up and started arguing. You're not my lawyer, I said to Kunstler, and I argued my own case. I just want to I just want to interject one more time because like Kunstler honestly like was backing up his right to de to defend himself as opposed to taking another lawyer. But right. even still, just to like not give the illusion that Kunstler was speaking for him, he was like, "You're not my lawyer." <laughs> right. To make that very clear just so it didn't get misinterpreted or confused like thanks for supporting my argument but you're not my fucking lawyer <laughs> you right. know like, just for clarity do you want to pick up there yeah sure <laughs> Kunstler is not my lawyer I said I fired the man nothing or now I had nothing personal against Kunstler because I know that Kunstler is in the struggle and that he is supposed to be a good lawyer I was just upholding the principle that I had a right to my own lawyer from there on, for about two or three weeks, it was me standing up whenever my name was mentioned, which we saw in the movie. Most of the time when I stood up, uh, Hoffman would say to Kunstler, you are the lawyer from, for Mr. Seal. And I'd say, no, he's not my lawyer. I want to request the right to have my own lawyer, Mr. Charles R. Gary, here, or the right to defend myself. <clears throat> Hoffman didn't even investigate. He didn't care. A judge is supposed to at least investigate a person's position especially in regard to legal defense, but he didn't. Surprise. Right. At this point, I tried to find out every piece of legal information that I could. There was a young black girl at the trial who was in law school. She came up to the defense table every once in a while, and I asked her to get me all the legal information she could. Wineglass said he would get me all the legal information he could. So they birthed both birth. They both worked it out to get me legal information concerning my right to defend myself and my right to have my own attorney. As I got more legal information, I began to argue more and harder. I got hold of material about an old reconstruction law. Section 1941 of the US government code says that a black man cannot be discriminated against in any manner in any court in America concerning legal defense. When I got a hold of that man, oh man, it was a real thing with me because I knew I was right by the laws and by the Sixth Amendment. <clears throat> Before I was gagged, Hoffman actually got to the point where he'd shout over me. I'd jump up and start talking rather fast saying, Judge Hoffman, you don't darn well, I have a right to have my own lawyer uh, or else the right to defend myself. He'd start talking real loud, take the jury out, take the jury out. I don't want to hear this man. Mr. Marshall, set that man down, take the jury out. Seems. Seems like the movie was pretty spot on with their, like... Depiction of Hoffman. Yeah. 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 Just uh, obnoxious and not wanting the jury to witness what a blatant fucking racist he really was. And that Seal was on point in that assertion there right from the start. Right. Uh, he did this so the court reporter could only record what Hoffman was saying and not what I was saying. But I got hip to him. I saw the tactics he was using, so every time he started raising his voice, I'd raise mine up too. 
Then four or five days after the trial started, the thing came up about the threatening notes to the jury, which again, that was portrayed in the movie. Um, the, the court claimed that jurors were getting threatening notes from the Black Panther Party, which I don't think that the Black Panther they Party is that fucking stupid. I'm just saying. Nothing about them strikes right. me as stupid. They wouldn't have tried to threaten the fucking jury. If anything, they would have tried to talk some reason with them and go, wait a minute, these are constitutional rights being violated and you have to take that into consideration because we're people too. Right. That whole threatening bullshit was not Black Panther Party mode at all by any means. Yeah. So Hoffman was again full of shit, but right. <laughs> Man, that was rotten. I was sitting there in the court that morning, then all of a sudden Schultz and, uh, said something about the lawyers and the prosecution going into the chambers to talk something over. Boom. So the marshals took me with the other defendants into a room and the lawyers came into the room and said that the jury had received some threatening notes saying, you're being watched, signed the Black Panthers. What? I said, oh man. Kunstler said Schultz and Foreign didn't want any publicity about it. Don't want any publicity about it? Well, later for them punks, man. We're not going to send any stupid notes like that, man. Somebody's railroading us. I mean, obviously, as I said, they're not that fucking stupid. I felt that Schultz and Foreign knew about the whole thing. But I said to myself, even if Schultz and Foreign don't know about it, <clears throat> then it's a government CIA operation because they figured that Schultz and Foreign would discover it and use it against me to try to prejudice the jury because I'm the only one they have absolutely no evidence against. So they need this. The, U ever, the U.S. government needs this to railroad me. I'm trying to... I want to interject for a moment because honestly, from what I saw in Judas and the Black Messiah, I would actually think it was more likely the FBI agents that were setting up Fred Hampton because that type of note is exactly the style of bullshit like what they were putting in those pamphlets to frame up Fred. Mm -hmm. Just saying. Anyhow. Um, <laughs> I'm going to... <clears throat> I'm going to publicize this and accuse the government of doing it because that's the only people I think would do it. Somebody said, well, how do you know some quack didn't send it? Some quack might have sent it, I told them, but you guys get a copy of that, a Xerox copy of that stuff and send it to a handwriting expert and find out what kind of person wrote the notes. And I'll bet 10 to 1 we're going to find out a person who relates to some kind of authority in this system. So, I wrote a statement saying that I believe the U.S. government sent the note to trick us and that the Black Panther Party never signs anything, quote, the Black Panthers. If we sign anything, right. it's signed Black Panther Party, and we don't send notes. It's some of the same crap that happened during Huey P. Newton's trial when they railroaded Huey. The same business about threatening letters and threatening notes. When Huey got on the stand during that trial, and when Huey started really explaining the true philosophy of the Black Panther Party, a lot of those jurors took time to objectively check Huey out. They found out that Huey was a very intelligent person. He wasn't what the DA was trying to make him out to be. 
Uh, more than likely, I thought then they are hip to this now and the government wants to destroy me in the minds of the jury before I can take the stand or gain the right to defend myself. I reacted very strongly to that note, realizing that no one else but the CIA or the FBI could have sent it. If Schultz and Foreign did know about it, then they sent it. Uh, but I thought probably the CIA did it. The CIA has done some dirty, rotten work. They started the Cuban thing. They were behind Vietnam and escalating that war. And in all the other murders and operations that they've been involved with, they just sit on the side and never say a thing. They would compare the SS, or we would compare the SS in Germany with the CIA because the government uses them as a behind the scenes police state operation. Yep. Anyway, that's the way I saw it and felt it. With all the infiltrating operations that they tried to pull on the Black Panther Party, I could only see it that way, and that's the way I reacted to it. From there on, I began to get a few legal points about my right to defend myself, and I argued more vigorously. Judge Hoffman started shouting over me so the recorder wouldn't hear things, but I'd talk loud enough so she could hear me and argue with him, to the point of calling him a fascist, a racist, and a pig, and using that right in the context of my argument. No judge wants to be called a fascist, a racist, and a pig, but that's what he was acting like, running over my constitutional rights like that, just ignoring them. I'm going to use yep. this in my arguments at every point, I said to myself, and that just might persuade him to understand that I really want him to investigate. He finally did investigate three days after he gagged me. Tom Hayden and Len Wineglass said that they wanted to go see Charles R. Gary about my being gagged, and Hoffman knew he had gotten out of hand in gagging me. Then he tried to say there was a precedent for gagging me, but Hoffman was a stone liar because I had gotten hold of legal information on the other cats who had been gagged in court, and uh, these cats had picked up chairs and thrown them at people. I had never picked up a chair and thrown it. I had never run up into the jury box and shaken the jurors' shoulders. I never did things like that. The only thing I ever said to the jury after those threatening letters was, good morning, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I hope you don't blame me for anything. Hoffman was rushing the jury out and trying to talk over my voice because threatening letters that were purported to be sent by the Black Panther Party were not sent out by the Black Panther Party and Judge Hoffman, you know it, and this whole court knows it. Hoffman was talking at the same time I was. I don't think the court recorder got it all. I don't think the, the court recorder was against me. I don't think she was on my side, but I got a message from someone folded up in a a uh, piece of paper saying that the court uh, the court recorder said, when you speak out, please talk slower so I can get it all on the record. It's in your defense. I began to feel yep. that people were really getting on the judge because I even found out that a couple of the marshals didn't dig what Hoffman was doing. Behind the scenes in the lockup, man, they'd shake their heads. They had some deputy marshals in the court who were actually guards over at the Cook County Jail and who worked the late shift at night. When they got off in the morning, they'd come over and get in their civilian clothes and work a day shift as a special deputy marshals. Most of the cats I saw in Cook County Jail in the morning before I'd come over to court were marshals at the trial. The guards turned out and got on my side because of the way Hoffman was treating me. The guards, everybody asked questions. I just don't see how the judge can do that. And some would just shake their heads. One morning, <clears throat> they attempted to remove members of my family from the courtroom. I got up and I protested about that and I called the judge a racist again. It was, an actual, it was actually an old court matron who seemed to be the cause of all of it. Every time I looked around at her, uh, she'd be almost breathing down their necks, breathing down the necks of every Black Panther Party member and every black person in that courtroom. 
they had put them all in one little section and she was looking out at it, or she was looking at each one of them, at every move they made. All of a sudden she told some chick to get out and another cat to get out. <clears throat> they weren't being noisy, but she was getting them out of the courtroom. Um, Kunstler stood up and said, why are they removing black people from the courtroom? <laughs> it looks like a little bit of racism to me, I said, because the, the black people weren't carrying on at all. Then one morning, one of the marshals came back into the lockup before the court had started and says, Bobby, you've got a lot of Black Panthers, a lot of black people out there that's on your side today. I hope nothing happens. Well, nothing's going to happen, I said. They're here to observe. They've got a right to observe. They've got a right to be in here. Well, the judge told us to go over and sit you down, and I just don't want any of them to start anything. They're not gonna start anything, I replied. When you guys are pushing me down in chairs and stuff like that, you're carrying out a racist judge's orders. He's making you act in a racist manner. Well, I'm not really a racist. I said, yeah, you say you aren't, but I'll talk to him. Five minutes later, they came back and got me. Court still hadn't started. All the defendants were scattered around the defense table. Schultz and Foreign were around the prosecution's table. I said, brothers and sisters in the audience, I wanna say a few things to you. You've been noticing for the past few weeks in this courtroom that I've been threatened by the judge and they're talking about gagging me and all this crap, but I have a right to speak out on my own behalf. Uh, and then this next part is in parentheses, although there, oh, it's two paragraphs in parentheses. I was going to say, but there's no end parentheses. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> a few days before I had gotten into an argument with Hoffman and I asked him, and this is in the court record, do I have a right? Or do I not have a right to stand up and make requests and motions and speak on behalf of myself on those requests and motions? Give or take a few words, I said just that. Hoffman never answered me as to whether I did or did not have that right. It's very important because he should have said, no, you don't have a right to stand up and speak out on behalf of yourself. All he said was, you have a lawyer. I'm contending that I don't have a lawyer, I said to Hoffman. Uh, pointing out that I had fired Kunstler, and you can appoint him for me. Do I, or do I not, have a right to speak out on behalf of myself in making a request or motion, and in fact, arguing that motion? Then I said, this is a request and a motion. Just like that, but Hoffman wouldn't answer me on it. So, I was speaking to the cats in the audience, and I was telling them that I had a right to speak out on my behalf and wanted to, wanted to defend myself. But I don't want you cats out there to get upset and get emotional and start doing anything that's out of the ordinary. You've got a right to be participants here. You've got a right to observe this trial and see what's going on. If anything happens, don't do anything unnecessary. If anybody attacks us, we defend ourselves. That's the principle of the party. Whether they have a gun or not, if they attack us, we defend ourselves. If they make us leave the courtroom, they make us leave the courtroom, we leave. But don't do anything, don't anybody do anything. Keep your cool. We're human beings and we've got a right to defend ourselves, but don't do anything. Just be cool because I will have a right to speak out on behalf of myself. The court convened and Schultz got up and said very nasty like, if the court please, before you came into this courtroom, if the court please, Bobby Seal stood up and addressed this group. Schultz tried to make it sound real bad. He was up there talking and I jumped up and walked to the lectern and said, I can speak on behalf of my constitutional rights too. Then I went back to my seat and went to sit down. Marshals were moving all around the room about to charge me. They were really coming in on me, man. Schultz still tried to say that I had spoken about attacking people. 
I stood up again. The marshals ran over to me, grabbed me, and the big one hit me. He grabbed me and pushed me at the same time. He pushed me back in the seat when I stood up. When I hit the seat, the whole seat went back over and I hit the floor. The chair didn't go all the way to the floor, but I was sitting right in front of some of the audience and spectators. The chair had wheels on it and rolled back at the same time I was being pushed. When the chair went back, my leg came up. When the marshal pushed me down, my leg came up and it hit the bottom of the defense table. At the same time, another cat, a big tall cat we called Slim, came up, pulled my arm and put it in a hammerlock. Hey man, you're hurting me, I said. Now this was Slim trying to do his job, but at the same, try same time, trying not to mess with me. He pulled my arm back down and held it there. He said, hey man, be cool. No man, I said, and I was really yelling out. I started yelling out then. I, I would too, are you kidding me? Right? That's called assault. Right. You're lying. Dirty liar. I told them to defend themselves. You are a rotten racist pig, a fascist liar. That's what you are. You're a rotten liar. You are a fascist pig liar. Schultz continued at this point, telling the judge that I was trying to disrupt the court. Schultz, why don't you tell the truth? I shouted. Why don't you tell the truth about exactly what I said? By this time, the marshals had let me go. Why don't you tell the truth about exactly what I said? What I said was, be cool and don't do anything. We have a right to defend ourselves if attacked. I didn't say anything like what you're trying to insinuate. Isn't that right? Tell the truth. I hollered at him. And you know what Schultz did? He said, yes. Yes, Your Honor, I'm sorry. Your Honor will understand, I'm sure. And Schultz went and sat down. I had caught him in a cold, bold-faced lie. The same day, Schultz passed around a photograph of a black cat wearing a t-shirt with a clenched fist on it, the power to the people salute, the solidarity fist. Yes. Um, Schultz said, I want to enter this photograph in evidence. It's a picture of a black man in a sweatshirt, and on that sweatshirt there is a clenched fist, a black power salute. I stood up at that point and said, I object to the characterization of the evidence. It's not correct. The salute is directly related to the Black Panther Party, which started it. Well, I don't know about started it. It was used by unions decades before that, but that, whatever. Uh, as, as we generally see it today, I will give them credit for. But right. it wasn't. It wasn't them that came up with the idea. Anyway, um, it really means power to the people. And that's exactly what it meant in the unions too. Right. To characterize it and isolate it, that was, that that way, only as part of the black power movement is very racist. And Schultz jumped out of his chair. He was turning red, man. Your honor, he says in a very loud voice and trying to make it sound derogatory. Mr. Seal has called me a racist, your honor. And he has called you a racist. That's right, I said. That's exactly what you are if you're going to characterize evidence like that. You are a racist. Your Honor, I repeated, it's a mischaracterization. It's the power to the people salute. It's not just isolated to black power. Black people in the Black Panther Party initiated it. But what we mean by it is power to all the people. And I mean, wasn't that their slogan? All power to all people? Right. Absolutely. That was I don't another know how form. that could possibly be misinterpreted when it's very simple, all power to all the people. Right. I, I don't... It's not like it was lost in together. translation either. I mean, 
they're speaking English. <laughs> right. And unlike lawyers and judges, it's not a special language like legalese meant to confuse you. It's very straightforward. It literally means what it says. Yeah. That was another form of defending myself, and Schultz finally had to sit down. They had really gotten to a point where they didn't want to have anything else to do with me. When they started trying to misconstrue things that pointed directly at me, I had no other alternative but to speak out on behalf of myself, or at least to object, because I had a right to defend myself. Although um, Hoffman continued to deny me that right. Some of these things the jury was able to see, although most times Hoffman rushed the jury out of the room. Not surprising. Right. Uh, gagged, shackled, and bound is the next section here. That day I had to call Schultz a liar for trying to misquote me was the day I was gagged. I had demanded my rights. I told them I demand my constitutional rights. I even banged on the table while I was talking. And Judge Hoffman, you know it. I have a constitutional right to defend myself. They recessed the court, then came back, and Hoffman said, Mr. Seal, are you going to disrupt this court anymore? I'm not disrupting the court, I replied. I am going to make my request and demand that I have a right to defend myself because I know I have that right. Then Hoffman told the marshals, take the defendant and appropriately deal with him. That's the way Hoffman said it, in a very shitty manner. Yeah, I mean, me in the in the movie, like... I, I can't remember if they used that exact wording, but the way he said it, you know, it sounded like he, like, had venom in his voice, you know? Yeah, Take the defendant and appropriately papers. deal with him. You know, like fucking Darth Sidious and right. shit. Right, nasty as fuck. <laughs> Just, like, he... He was so fucking pissed because he was correctly called a fucking racist and a pig a racist, so many fucking times. A racist, and his fascist ego pig. couldn't handle it. Exactly. Yes. His ego was exploding all over the fucking place in that courtroom. And this is how it fucking came out. Uh... They took me right back to the lockup, right outside the courtroom. They got some tape and put it across my mouth. They handcuffed my hands down close to the legs of a metal folding chair and put the irons on my legs. They looped the chain through one of the rods running across the front of the folding part of the chair and brought it out and clasped it to my right leg. The jury came back in and Judge Hoffman says some kind of crazy crap. Disregard this and disregard that. I shook my head from left to right at the jury and said, uh-uh, uh-uh. Some tears started rolling down one of the jurors' cheeks, and I looked at the jury again. Uh-uh. Hoffman said stuff like, Mr. Steele is trying to disrupt the court. I shook my head at the jury. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Indicate I was not trying to disrupt. I sat there and something else came up. Hoffman said something else about me, so I rattled the handcuffs against the metal chair. Clang, 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 clang. It's a means of objecting, still trying to defend myself. A little later, they brought a witness on to testify, and my name was mentioned. Through the tape, I hollered, I object, in a muffled sound. But it could be heard, I object. The tape wasn't holding too well because of my beard, so I said again, I object. I object. I have the right to defend myself. So they took me out again. Two or three marshals lifted the chair up and just took me back into the lockup. 
They put the tape back on me, put a rag around my mouth, tied the thing, and took me back into the courtroom. Later, Hoffman asked me if I would promise not to, quote, disrupt the court. He loved to use the words disrupt and outburst so the press could print disrupt and outburst, and people wouldn't see what was really going on. What was involved was really an issue of constitutional rights. Hoffman said I should indicate my answer by shaking my head up and down for yes or left to right for no. I didn't shake my so, head up hold and on. down. I, I wanted to interject here because, well, I mean, there's plenty of criticism to make about him. But when he was running for city council, we saw this exact same kind of thing about Eric Mays. And don't get me wrong. Yeah, he fucking drove the wrong way with four flat tires down 475 shortly after getting elected. So fucking what? He pawned his city of Flint laptop, so fucking what? My point is, is that well before he was ever elected, they were using that exact same tactic to, you know, like, try to discount him in the minds of the people. And it largely worked. Um, I mean, anytime that there's a media story about Eric Mays, it's defaming him. It's, uh, you know, calling him disruptive or you know, how he had another outburst at a city council meeting. I mean, I, I, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. When, like, the fact of the matter is, like, when we met him during Occupy and he was coming down to the city council meetings with us long before he was ever elected to the council, the well, shit yeah, he that was, was pointing when he was out gearing needed up to be to pointed run. out. The questions he was asking needed to be fucking asked. Right. And I mean, the, the council like at the time didn't want to answer him. And obviously enough people in his own ward agreed with him that he got elected. Right. Which is exactly what the council at the time didn't want. <laughs> Which um, is part of why they fought him on every fucking thing he ever brought up since um you know while within the council well i mean um, i, I just want to talk about you know like when the when the council didn't have any power right and, and the city council meetings were really the emergency manager meetings featuring the city council i'm sure you remember that because we were at a lot of those meetings yep um i, I would like to point out <laughs> that well, first of all, a lot of people like to blame the city of Flint themselves for switching over the water source, but that is not what happened. The emergency manager appointed by Rick Snyder made that decision unilaterally. Um, mm -hmm. At that point, most of the city council kind of just tucked tail and went along with it, right? They didn't have a choice because they didn't have any power. They didn't have any power, hands. right? So they wanted to like keep their perceived power, so they went along with. You know, instead of fighting it and, you know, like making waves and having Rick Snyder fucking evict them, who fucking knows. But I, I mean, I get I get why they didn't. But, you know, when the primarily white at that time city council did nothing to stop it, Eric Mays was there. <laughs> right. <laughs> going wait a fucking minute here because even at that time before the actual water switch we already had scientific evidence in hand showing this is what's going to happen if we let this water pass through these lead pipes untreated it's going to mm -hmm. leach lead from the pipes because it's going to corrode the fuck out of it it's going to cost a hundred dollars a day 
to treat the water so that it's not corrosive and doesn't leach lead from the pipes. Mike fucking Brown, that emergency financial manager that was anointed by Governor Snyder, that motherfucker said that the $100 a day to prevent the entire city from being poisoned was too much fucking money. That's why he didn't fucking do that. Why he just switched the water and gave no fucks about who it poisoned. Well, and I mean, if we really because look at it, though, like, the whole emergency manager situation was nothing but a, a vast power grab, a privatization push. Um, all that came out yeah. of all of those plans, it wasn't saved money, it was money going in the hands of the downtown and uptown development agencies. It was all going into the pockets of U of M um, board members. You know, like, all it did was speed up the already happening gentrification process in Flint. Yeah. So it did exactly what it was intended to do. Right. I truly believe that was a big part of why they were totally okay with poisoning the majority of the city because that's going to push out the people who were already living there. Um, a lot of whom, you know, were homeowners. I mean, that's when I went back to, that's when forward. I moved the fuck out of Flint. Right. It's part of why I moved the fuck out of Flint too. And even when I moved back into a place that had a fucking reverse osmosis system on the entire fucking house, I was still getting like breakouts on my skin from exposure to that water. And I was like, nope, can't do it. Move back out of town because it's fucked what that water was doing to you. Even if you're not drinking it, if you're bathing it alone, it's going to fuck your skin up. It's so fucking bad. So like this whole situation, they were totally fucking cool with because that was pushing people out to make the property values drop, make it super fucking cheap for people from outside of town to come in and buy these fucking houses, buy up these properties and start making money off of it. Yeah. Gentrification at its fucking finest. Right. And, and I mean, like, I guess we're getting a little off topic there, but I, I just wanted to point out the that that tactic is still used to silence dissent. Um, right, especially from black voices. Right, exactly. And I mean, again, you can say whatever you want about Eric Mays. I'm not saying that he's right on everything, but at least he fights what he, or you know, fights for what he believes in. And, right. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe listen to what he says before you disbelieve the press about, you know, him being disruptive or, you know, another emotional outburst. He's damn right to be emotional about a lot of it. He has seen the city that he right. grew up in go from one of the richest cities in America to one of the poorest. I'd be pretty pissed too, I'm just saying. Right. And to be honest, like, I sat down one day and watched a video of a closed council meeting um, that literally the entire time was spent arguing because the rest of the fucking council wanted to motion for Eric to have to shut the fuck up and not say anything and he's like excuse me 
I'm part of this council too. I don't have to shut the fuck up. They literally spent an entire council meeting arguing over whether they felt that he had the right to speak. And it's like, fuck you. He is an elected council person. He is here to represent his ward. How dare you even sit here and try to act like you have a legal means to silence him, which is right. And, and I mean, same like fucking type of playbook that Hoffman was using decades ago. Exactly, exactly. I digress. Any back to the book. Give me a second to find where I left off. It was at. Um, I didn't shake my head. Okay. I didn't shake my head up and down, nor did I shake it left to the right. I said, right through that gag, I have a right. My voice is muffled, but everybody could hear me. I have a right to defend myself. You know I have a right to defend myself, and you have no right to be gagging me and shackling me. I want to defend myself, and that's all I'm going for. People way in the back of the audience probably couldn't hear me at all, but the judge, the marshals, the press, and the audience close to me, they could hear. The next day, they strapped me into a wooden armchair, put a lot of padding in front of my mouth, and tied a big, large rag around it. Another rag came up under my chin. The marshals tied a knot on the top of my head. The gag came across my mouth and went around the back of my neck. The first day I was shackled and gagged, a big black marshal put the iron around my leg real tight so that the blood circulation had actually stopped in my right leg. The second time they shackled me, I motioned to the girl law student sitting at the defense table to give me a piece of paper. And I wrote a note that the blood circulation was being stopped in my arms because of the way the handcuffs were around my wrists. The only way I could get some relief was if I slouched way down in the chair. Somebody in the court said that my circulation was being stopped and another marshal came and loosened the handcuffs. Next day, they had some big straps instead of the handcuffs. Sit down in the chair, one of the marshals said. I sat down in the chair and said to myself, Hoffman looks like a damn fool. Sitting up there gagging me and carrying on. He knows that I've got a right to defend myself. He knows I should have a lawyer here, a lawyer of my choice, and he's foolish. So this cat started wrapping straps around my arm. Say, man, they're kind of tight, I said. That's just the way it's going to have to be. Oh, oh shit, shit, I said. <laughs> he wrapped one strap down my leg, and he said, is that tight? No, I said, they're not tight down there. Then he tightened them up some more. Later, another marshal came by, and I said, say, man, these things are too tight. So he loosened them. After that, he put the gag over my mouth. After I was gagged and everything, they went out in this same big punk pig, tightened them right back up around my arms, just tightened them right back up again. And then he opened that door and said, come on, to one of the other marshals who was standing outside the door. And they picked me up and took me to the table. I was trying to wiggle my hands to circulate the blood in my left arm. I was sitting there and court was going on. I was listening, and every once in a while, I was trying to wiggle my hands. Thank you. I sat there for a while, and I noticed that the circulation in my arms literally stopped unless I wiggled my hands. Then this one pig sitting right beside me tightened the straps right back up again real tight. I kept trying to wiggle my hands, but wiggling them wasn't getting any blood circulating this time. So I started pushing the thing and pulling it 
pushing and pulling, trying to get some blood circulation. I beckoned to the law student with my head. She was my means of communication with Gary. What do you want? She asked me. She'd say, do you want a pencil? And I'd shake my head to indicate, yeah. In fact, I tried to talk through the gag. While she was standing there trying to help me, Schultz interrupted and said something about, Your Honor, I'd like the court to know that the young lady touched Mr. Steele's hand in a very motherly way when he left the courtroom yesterday. He said that for the jury to hear, hoping to discredit her for trying to help me out. Anyway, I wrote a little note that said my blood circulation was being stopped, and I told her to give it to Wineglass and tell Wineglass to tell the court. They were still doing some kind of cross-examining up there. I tried to move the straps. Those wooden chairs are kind of smooth and varnished. My arm was sitting on top of the arm of the chair, and I tried to slip my arm over to the side. The straps were going around the arm of the chair, and by moving my arm off of the chair, that kind of loosened it. And I said, ah. So I just pushed my arm back and forth. Straps were quite loose. And then started wiggling my hands to get some blood circulation. A big pig looked down and saw that I had loosened the straps and was wiggling my hand. Oh, excuse me. He reached over and pulled or grabbed the strap, trying to tighten the strap up. Man, that hurt the hell out of my arm. When he pulled the strap, he pulled my arm tight against the chair again, and I was shaking my head. Uh uh. I started to mumble, but I couldn't have to be heard. I want my blood circulation. I want to get my blood circulating. At the same time, he was reaching over me and jerking the chair. Two more marshals came up and grabbed at it. I bent forward and said, uh-uh. And the first pig struck an elbow in my chest. His elbow knocked me back against the back of the chair. He hit me again. One marshal was trying to pick up the chair and one was trying to sit the chair down. I'm sorry, can we pause this for a second? Because I keep yawning. I need to stand up for a moment and get something to drink and fucking breathe. I started to mumble, but couldn't have to be heard. I want my blood circulation. I want to get my blood circulating. At the same time he was reaching over me and jerking the chair, two more marshals came up and grabbed it. I bent forward and said, "Uh uh-uh. Then the first pig struck an elbow in my chest. His elbow knocked me back against the back of the chair. He hit me again. One marshal was trying to pick up the chair, and one was trying to sit the chair down, and I was pushing it back of the chair, trying to get out of the way of this cat hitting me in the chest. But I also learned that even though my legs were strapped to the bottom of the legs of the chair, my feet were firmly on the floor, so that when he was elbowing me and I was pushing back with my feet, the chair would move. Then three more marshals attacked me, all the same time with the other two still trying to pick up the chair. The whole chair went up in the air and fell all the way back into the press section. The press was sitting directly behind the defense table and I fell on top of them. They were frantically trying to get out of the way. All the marshals ran up to me at once. This one cat was still elbowing me, tightening a strap up on my left hand. Another marshal came rushing in and the chair rose halfway in the air again and fell over at an angle. Another pig rushed in and his elbow hit me right in the balls. Hurt the hell out of me. At that point, I bent to my right. I turned my hand around inside the straps and finally got the tip of my fingers up near my mustache and yanked and pulled my head back, yanking the gag off my mouth. I hollered out, you son of a bitch, you hit me in the balls. Don't hit me in my balls. 
I'm trying to get my blood circulation. I said it three or four times, so I cussed him out, called him a fascist and everything. At the same time, the judge was hollering, the court is adjourned, the court is adjourned. The jury was running out. It looked like all 10 or 12 marshals were beating me over there and killing me. Jerry Rubin, who was sitting next to me, got up and hollered out, look what you're doing, elbowing that man. You hit him in the mouth. The judge said something. He was ordering the court. It was just chaotic. This all happened because Judge Hoffman had gagged me. And then this rotten pig tried to beat me or treat me brutally while I was gagged and bound and shackled to this chair. It was a scene and a half, man. Finally, they got this other guy and they picked the chair up. Court was adjourned. While they were taking me out, I hollered out, cruel and unusual punishment. I don't even think they got that on the record, but I hollered it out, cruel and unusual punishment. And I said, you're a bunch of fascists. You're a fascist dog, judge. I just hit No. And then this big marshal said, you're this hard on yourself. I'm making nothing hard on myself, I said. You're just in cahoots with the damn judge. You're working with him. The next morning when they tried to gag me, I thought I was going to die. I mean, really die because of the way they were doing things. I was in the lockup for court convened and they said, sit in the chair. Don't tighten those things too tight on me, I said. This one marshal said, we're not going to tighten them too tight. So they strapped me down, and after they strapped me down, this one cat who wasn't going to tighten things too tight said, Bobby, we're going to put something in your mouth. No, you're not putting a damn thing in my mouth, I said. Not in my mouth. Oh, we have to put something inside your mouth. The judge just ordered it, and that's what we're going to do. Uh-uh, no, sir, you're not putting anything in my mouth. I'd already made up my mind. If he so much as got his fingers near my mouth, I was going to bite his motherfucking fingers off because I wasn't going to let him put anything in my mouth. You better not try to put it in my mouth because I have tonsillitis and it's going to exhaust me along with this other infection I'm being treated for. With all this penicillin, my temperature goes up a degree and a half, sometimes two degrees. And I have to go to town. And don't you be putting anything in my mouth. I'm not going to put it in my mouth. Right. You're Grab starting to cut out really said. bad. So I was shackled is- down probably a decent time for me to take it back for a minute okay go for it right on uh, um grab his head the marshal said i was shackled down one of the marshals put the palms of his hands on top of my head and he stepped up to me he had rubber gloves on and was holding a lot of rag that was rolled up it was about an inch or an inch and a half long and an inch in diameter he was going to jam this dunk down my mouth junk. I don't know why I said dunk. I was shackled down, legs, arms, everything. He grabbed my nose and held the water rag about three or four inches from my mouth. I figured he was going to try to wait till I ran out of breath by holding my nose, knowing I wanted to keep my mouth shut. He was going to wait until I needed some breath, and when I opened my mouth, he would move real fast and jam a rag into it. But it ain't going to work, I thought to myself. It ain't going to work. So I sat there. After a while, I began to need some breath. I held and held my breath as long as I could. He was getting ready to jam the rag into my mouth, but before I opened my mouth, I jerked my head to the left and then to the right real fast and got loose from the grip the other marshal had on my head and the grip this marshal had on my nose. I put my head down and started catching my breath. I looked up, they had stepped back. The next time they tried it, the cat put his arm around my head as if we were wrestling with somebody, 
Only I was sitting shackled in the chair and he was standing up. He put his arms around my head so that the back of my head was sitting against his chest. His arm headed downwards coming across my right ear. The cat grabbed my nose again. I was mad, man. I was mad as a motherfucker. You sons of bitches. You rotten dogs. They held me again and held my nose. When it began to look like I needed breath, he set the water rags right up against my lips and began to press real hard with the palm of his hand. He pressed so hard that I could even feel the blood seeping out of my gums and I could feel the inside of my lips busting because I was holding out. I was holding out as hard as I could. Then I started thinking, I'm going to pass out. I'm going to pass out. I didn't want to pass out. Then I got scared. I knew I wasn't going to let these cats put that rag in my mouth. I thought a whole lot of things. Things flashed off in my head. I became aware of my feet on the floor and wanting to push back and go to the left, but the cat holding my head could feel the tension in my body and he held tighter and harder. I was feeling like I was going to pass out and I didn't want to. I didn't want to be forced to pass out. And this cat was pushing, pushing, pushing against my mouth. So I pushed with my feet and somehow I began to use my weight with the chair. The legs were attached, or my legs were attached to the legs of the chair and I pushed real hard. I was about to pass out. I thought about Eldridge. I thought about the struggle and everybody in the party and I was thinking about Nat Turner even, all kinds of crazy things. I even had the notion that I wouldn't open my mouth even if I passed out. Although I knew that when you pass out, your mouth automatically opens before you die. All of a sudden I push with all of my weight and the next thing I know, I have this cat pinned up against the wall. He was in back of the chair holding my head and I had him pinned between the wooden chair and the wall. I had pushed all the way back, almost two and a half feet, and he had let go of my head. His body was between the wall and chair and I was pushing and yanking and he was trying to push the chair away from the wall and I was jamming him back against the wall. I was loose. I felt free and I started breathing. This other cat said, we can't put this in this cat's mouth. That damn judge, why did he order us to do this shit anyway? They decided not to put anything in my mouth, but that was some battle I fought with them. The marshal holding my head was a white cat and the marshal trying to jam the rag in my mouth was a black cat. They were working together. They're both pigs. It doesn't make any difference what color they are. The black marshal said, well, we're not going to do it. We can't do it. We did what we could. <clears throat> then they got some bandage. It was a roll of the type that football players and basketball players used to wrap around the legs. Ace bandages. We're talking about ace bandages. You wrap it around your legs and as you move, it becomes tighter. They had a piece about three inches wide. First they put some tape and some heavy padding all across my mouth, then they began to wrap. They wrapped all the way around and they wrapped it very tight. Uh, then they brought it under my chin and wrapped it above my head and under my chin. Actually, it was covering my throat too. They got it real tight. I started losing my breath again. I was getting choked by the bandage. I started shaking my head from left to right and the cat said, I think he's losing his breath. So they unwrapped it real quick. They started again and made it a point to come right under my chin and keep it away from my throat. They still wrapped it too tight because when I came out in the courtroom and looked to the left and looked to the right, that thing got tighter and tighter. The blood began to stop coming up to my head. That was too much. I started shaking my head, shaking my head. And Jerry Rubin and a couple of other people stood up. He's passing out. That thing is too tight on him. Uh, I started shaking my head and got my arm slightly loosened. I pushed my head down and with the tip of the finger, got a hold of the gag and pulled it off. I called Judge Hoffman every kind of thing I could think of to call him. Fascist, sanctioning, cruel and unusual punishment and breaking the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States. The marshal sna uh, snatched up the chair and was trying to rush me back to the lockup. 
Court was adjourning and there was all this commotion because the shit was getting to the point where I was about to pass out. That stuff wrapped me up, or that stuff was wrapped around me too damn tight. I was calling Hoffman a fascist and constantly referring to the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States where it says there shall be no cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. And this big old pig marshal put his hand around my mouth and nose and started pulling. The other marshals grabbed the chair and started dragging it. But when they got to the door, there was a little rise caused by the carpet molding between the door and the concrete floor and the chair stopped. I was still calling them about everything I could think of, and the marshals were jumping all around me trying to get the chair out. This big pig grabbed me around my face and covered my mouth so I couldn't say anything, but I wiggled away from him. He grabbed me again and covered my nose and mouth until I couldn't even breathe. Uh, he let go and I started hollering out again. The door was still open. Uh, he tried to reach to close it, but before he could, I was hollering so loud he reached back, grabbed my mouth and nose again so I couldn't breathe and just held me there. Then he hollered out to one of the other marshals. Everybody in the courtroom seemed to be filing out. The jury was going out while all of this was happening. And Judge Hoffman was ordering him out. It wasn't an outburst. It wasn't an attempt to disrupt the court. What it was was a man trying to gain his constitutional right to defend himself or have his lawyer there simple it is his choice according to the united states supreme court i was pretty sure that the united states supreme court had said that you can have a lawyer of your choice who is effective and if this is not possible the defendant has the right to defend himself hoffman didn't see it that way and they regagged me but real loose they loosened the straps uh, when they brought me back in the chair wine glass and tom hayden made a motion that the court take notice of the fact that charles r gary was my lawyer then, they said that they were going to see Gary over the weekend. Hoffman adjourned court early Friday, uh, so Hayden uh, and Wineglass could go see Gary in San Francisco. Anyone can read the court record and see that I wasn't trying to sabotage the trial, but I was trying to get my constitutional right to either defend myself or have my lawyer present recognized. But jo Judge Hoffman wouldn't recognize it. The following Monday, they didn't gag me. I didn't see it say anything all day because my, my name never came up. Nobody said anything about Kunstler being my lawyer that day, so I just sat there. That morning, before the jury came in, Hoffman said he wouldn't gag me if I would act right. He put it in his little old jive way. I said I was going to demand my constitutional rights and that I would continue to demand my constitutional rights. I tried to explain to him that I had been subjected to cruel and unusual punishment uh, so that another of my constitutional rights, the Eighth Amendment, had also been violated. I sat down and didn't have anything else to say. Nobody said anything against me. Um, I guess I just want to point out here that uh, all of this, all of this comes down to the fact that Judge Hoffman would not respect that he had an attorney who was not able to make the court date who filed a motion about it a month before the court the, the trial started. All of this comes down to that. All of it. Um, anyway. Then they brought a witness to the stand who was testifying against me. He mentioned my name. So I stood up and said that I objected to this witness testifying against me because my lawyer was not present. That was late Monday afternoon. I said that I had requested and deserved the right to cross-examine the witness myself. 
Mr. Seal, Hoffman says in his little sarcastic, dramatized, puny racist manner. I remind you that you have a lawyer. I do not have a lawyer at all, and I have something to say on behalf of myself. You keep telling me that I have a lawyer, but I don't have a lawyer. I went on to tell the court that Kunstler was not my lawyer. I made it clear with every piece of emotion and every feeling that I could get forth that Kunstler was not my lawyer. The jury saw it and everybody saw it. The jury was well aware by this time that I didn't have a lawyer. They were well aware that Hoffman was me uh, messing over me. And Hoffman knew the jury knew. I saw a woman juror cry. I was, I was always hoping that none of these jurors had been bought off by the government. When I said after being gagged that I had no lawyer, I think the jury must have seen even more what the situation was. Tuesday morning, court convened and I made up my mind that I was gonna demonstrate to Judge Hoffman that I could adequately act in my own defense. This was another way of arguing for my right to defend myself. After the jury came in, Hoffman asked Kunstler and Weinglass if they wanted to cross-examine uh, cross the witness. They both said, no, the witness isn't testifying against our clients and we do not represent Mr. Seal. I got up and said, I would like to approach the lectern and ask the witness, a San Francisco sheriff, some questions. I asked him if he had ever killed a Black Panther Party member or participated in, in any raids on any Black Panther Party offices or on a Black Panther Party member's home. I asked him why he goes around following people in airports when they're traveling and when they're buying tickets. Sit down, Hoffman said. I'm going to ask another question. Hoffman told me to sit down again. I was just getting ready to sit down, so I said, this is a fascist operation, and turned and sat down. Hoffman cooled his marshals off. He didn't have them attack me as they had done previously. Hoffman adjourned the court, and uh, that afternoon he came back and read off a bunch of crap. He just took everything out of context and didn't report things as they really happened. He just read the court record and said, this was contempt of court, and this was contempt of court. And every last one of those instances, I was talking about my right to defend myself, my constitutional rights. He sat up and asked me if I wanted to, to defend myself or if I wanted to speak on my behalf after he got through reading off all of those so-called uh, so-called contempts. I told him that I didn't want to speak to him because he wouldn't let me speak before on behalf of myself. I'm not going to beg you for no time, I told him. How long have you been putting black people in jail and prisons and railroading people and denying them their constitutional rights, I asked him. Then I sat down. He gave me four years in prison. He sentenced me unjustly. He sentenced me to four years in prison because I had demanded my rights. He declared a mistrial only for me because the jury never would have gone along with him. That's the real reason. He tried to obscure it and say that it was something else, but four or five people on that jury were really mad. Those people did not like Judge Hoffman. I was looking at them uh, when I was gagged. Hoffman was observing that, that jury too. He knew what he was doing. So in essence, that is how the Chicago 8 trial turned into the Chicago 7 trial. Um, I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up. What do you think? Okay. Yeah. Take note here, we're at page 193 at Yippies, Convicts, and Cops. 
Alright, um... Well, um... I know that we missed our, uh, Emma Goldman piece yesterday. Um, I would say watch for that either Friday or next Wednesday. Um, I apologize for that. I, I, I know that you all understand, though, that life happens. Right. I apologize for that, too. I've been for two days and was not up to it yesterday. Fair enough. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, we have a website for wearemany.org. Uh, we have an Instagram, a TikTok, a YouTube, a Twitter. Uh, of course, we have our Facebook page. We have our education and discussion group and our mutual aid organizing group. Um, if you haven't heard yet, the anti-fascist group is down. Uh, it was flagged and removed by Facebook uh, yesterday morning. And uh, now we have moved to the backup group. Um, I mean, honestly, if you're on uh, Rhino's friends list, then you pretty much get a free pass into the new group. It's it's simply anti-fascist too, as in like the Roman numeral two. Um, of course, I'm always going to recommend that you visit the anti-fascist group. You might learn something. I still learn Indeed. shit in that group. <laughs> right. Same. I love that group. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the end of an era, but we're going to rebuild. Indeed. I, I still can't believe it was at almost six and a half thousand people in like four months. That's crazy. Five months? Well, speaks volumes for where the hearts of the people really are right now. Because yeah. fuck this fascist bullshit. Right. And, and I mean, I know Don pointed it a lot, uh, pointed it out a lot when he was on the, on the show, but, um, you know, like reading this is, is really showing me more and more how little has changed in 50 fucking years. Right. It's downright fucking shameful. Sure is. Uh, so, like I said, that Emma Goldman piece either will be coming your way Friday or next Wednesday. Um, we've been a little slow at posting things to the website this week as well, and I apologize for that, but um, I'm going to catch us all back up over the weekend. Um, and then next week, of course, we will have the third and final segment of our Communist Manifesto series. Um, we will have part 12 um, of this, of the Black Panther Party and Dialectical Materialism series. Um, I would imagine at this point that it'll probably be two to three more episodes uh, before we finish this book. Um, could be less though who knows um yeah 
if we do get the Emma Goldman piece out on Friday, then we will have another historical or biographical piece on Wednesday, but I don't want to promise it and not deliver. Right. <laughs> Let's get through what we can. It's been a rough week, but we're still here. <laughs> <laughs> right. That being said, if you want to help uh, take some of the work off of us, um, Join us. We could use man. some help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, we've been having some pretty steady growth, but it's really hard to keep it up constantly when it's just two of us. So, I mean, not that it's literally just two of us, but as you see on the streams lately, it's it's largely uh, been up to us lately. And I don't, I don't mind doing the work for it. That's not what I'm trying to say, but we could do so much more if we had some help. Indeed. <laughs> Um, yeah. So if you're interested, um, you can either make an account at forweermany.org and message us that way. You can use our contact us form on the forweermany.org website. And that will, I mean, ultimately that'll send us an email, which you can also do, uh, at, uh, at gmail.com. Uh, that being said, I would like to encourage everybody to follow us on all of our social media platforms. Obviously, with only two of us primarily running the social media and most of our focus going into the Facebook page and group, um, you know, sometimes we tend to overlook Instagram or TikTok, but we're trying to improve that moving forward. And if there's people on there that actually engage with our content then it would probably encourage us to do it more um, <laughs> right yeah. right now i'm i'm thankful that natalie is on point on helping us keep up the the conversation flow and everything when it comes yeah. to the facebook pages well if especially anybody... the group um honestly right. i mean like i don't i don't think that we would be able to have the continuous presence in the group that we have had lately if it wasn't for natalie so Thank you. Absolutely. I, I'm sure that you're watching yes. this, Natalie. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Mad props to you. Thank you for the effort, the solidarity. You're on point and we appreciate you. If there's anybody who is a pro at like the TikTok and stuff like that, and you'd like to get down on helping us with those social medias too, by all means, let us know. We could use more admins. Absolutely. It gets yeah, hard to sure. keep up on all of it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, see you guys Monday night for our current event stream, which will probably not be live. So if we're not engaging with the comments, I'm sure that either Trisha or Natalie will be, you know, on the video in the comments. Um, but I personally will be at work during the current event stream. So it's probably not actually going to be a live stream this week. I apologize. Again, life happens, you know. It's, we roll with the punches. We ride this roller coaster of what the fuck very well. <laughs> Holding on tight. <laughs> but, you know that's life that it is
that it is. On that note, you look about as tired as I do. <laughs> yeah. We need to get some fucking sleep. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I mean, at this point, I'm probably going to uh, actually like upload the shit in the morning. Great. Indeed. I don't blame you. Go get some rest. It's been a very late night. Again, apologies for the yawns. <laughs> I'm exhausted. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, last weekend, it didn't really work out for either one of us to uh, pre-record like we had planned. So, I mean, it is what it is, but right, we're getting there. Indeed. <laughs> As I we're said, here. see you all Monday and Tuesday yeah. and probably Wednesday and Thursday. Indeed. <laughs> Good night, everybody. We love you. Thank you for the support.